Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. I truly believe that thoughts are the greatest vehicle to change. We do not care whether the cat is black or white, as long as it can catch mice. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. To those waiting with bated breath for that favorite media catchphrase, the U-turn, I have only one thing to say. You turn if you want to. The ladies not for turning. I'll stick with gin. Champagne is just ginger ale that knows somebody. Is a quote by the character Hawkeye from the hit TV show, MASH. I thought this was a suitable quote for our guest today. Someone who has achieved astonishing success and is now taking on the global giants through his wit, creativity, and authenticity. Our guest today is Stuart Gregor, co-founder of award-winning Australian gin brand and distillery, Four Pillars Gin. He's also the founder of creative communications agency, Liquid Ideas, that partners with well-known food, drink, and lifestyle brands. Stuart served on the boards of Oz Harvest and Starlight Foundation. He was previously the inaugural board chair for the Australian Public Relations Council and president and chair for the Australian Distillers Association. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Limitations, a show where we speak to elite world-class performing men and women and unlock the secrets and influences that have shaped their destinies and that you could apply to your own life. For our first-time listeners from all over the world, please don't forget to follow on your preferred podcast platform and share with your friends and colleagues. And for our listeners in Kenya, South Africa and Egypt, a big hello. I am your host, Greg Robinson, Managing Partner of Blenheim Partners Board and Executive Search Firm. In a captivating conversation, Stu takes us through the ups and downs of entrepreneurship, the art and science of creative and impactful marketing, innovation in customer experience, and the behind the scenes in building what is now Australia's largest craft distillery. From his early days as a journalist to his foray into the wine industry and the founding of Liquid Ideas and Four Pillars, Stu offers us some valuable insight into how one can distinguish themselves in a highly competitive landscape in a world that has never been more connected. So sit back, maybe have a gin and tonic, and enjoy Four Pillars of Humanity. Stu, welcome to the show. Uh, Greg, thanks for having me. Well, I'm going to ask for the obvious question, what's the preferred drink? <laughs> well, I'm still a gin and tonic drinker, you know, I've made a bit of gin over the years, but um, I mean, I came out of the wine game, I'm... <laughs> I just went to the footy yesterday, so I'm partial to quite a few schooners yeah. uh, pre, uh, pre, during, and post. So, I mean, honest to God, I'll drink whatever people put in front of me. <laughs> I can be a very non-discerning drinker if I need to be. But, uh, no, I'm going to have to stick with gin, I suppose. The Four Pillars gin is enough. And uh, any, It's got me where I am. Yeah, <laughs> any preferred flavours or styles from the Four Pillars? Because I, I had the opportunity to go to a um, grog shop just recently. <laughs> What an unusual occurrence for you, <laughs> it must have been. Oh, you must have been in the aisle ahead of me then. But when I was there, I couldn't believe the range. Quite fascinating and well done. Yeah, look, we've got, I mean, we've got probably, well, at, at any one time we'd have a dozen different 
types of gin on the market. Some barrel aged, some soaked in Shiraz grapes, some with different you know different herbs, different spices, different botanicals, all that sort of stuff. But I'm a bit of a classicist. I've actually I like this this drink that I've kind of invented myself called a gin and sonic, right? Which is half soda, half tonic. I'm trying to lower the sugar of the tonic, yep. but also it makes the gin sing a little bit more. You know, I actually quite like gin with soda rather than tonic because the yeah, tonic okay. tends to overwhelm the flavor a little bit. So gin and sonic, but the problem is bars hate it because they have to open two. <laughs> they have to open a soda and a tonic to make my drink, so it costs me twice as much. Is that right? Yeah. Still get your slice of lemon, I hope. No, orange. Or- orange. Yes, yes. Four Pillars is a big orange brand. We love oranges. A little more subtle. The flavor, you know, lemon can be quite acidic, quite tart. Yeah, okay. So we're a big fan of um, oranges in our gin. So what actually is Four we're Pillars? We're learning, learning a lot about gin now. Well, you? well what is Four Pillars? <laughs> I am. Yeah, you are. What um, is Four Pillars? Yeah. It's a, it's a gin brand. Um, there it's a was, dist- distillery, there, isn't it? Yeah, it's a distillery down in the Hillsville in the Yarra Valley. So we basically set up almost, so it's 2013, about August, September, we first set up. We made uh, our very first gin, released our very first gin on the first first week of December 2013. You know, we're Australia's biggest craft distillery of any kind now, um, certainly Australia's biggest gin distillery. And we probably represent, we figured the other day, we probably represent more than more than 60% of all Australian spirits exports is, is four pillars. So we've got a um, – and we're probably 40 or 50% of Australian gin. So pretty good market share, selling million-plus bottles a year. Mm-hmm. And um, and I'm on their way out the door, mate. I know you are. <laughs> both metaphorically and literally have, have one foot out the door. And my, my second foot will be going out the door within the week. Are you surprised by the success? I don't think you can honestly say you're surprised by success if you set yourself up to succeed. You invest the right amount of money, you get the good people around you. I don't think – perhaps the, the scale of the success has surprised me a little bit. I mean, mm. I'm not sure I thought we would. So, for instance, this year we're, we're on the shortlist of just three distilleries to be the International Gin Distiller of the Year, an award we've already won twice. Now, no yeah. gin distiller in the world has ever won it three times. Okay. That's announced in London at the end of October. That's up against some well-known brands. Yeah, and that's yeah, absolute yeah. tradition. And there. I don't think I thought we would be that. F- I mean, I certainly thought we could probably be Australia's best gin because there wasn't a lot of competition when we started. Mm-hmm. But for us to be as good as any gin distillery in the world, yeah, that's not a bad rap, I suppose. Well, how do you go from being a founder and owner of a gin distillery from many years going back to, was it News Corp and runner-up cadet journalist of the year? <laughs> That's good research, mate. Not many people know that I was runner-up. I know, runner-up. That's such a great effort. How do they measure that? Look, I just want to give kudos to Lisa Green, who won that. Because it wasn't- (laughs) Still dark with her. Well, it wasn't clicks in the old days. No, no clicks. So one of my first- Actually, one of my first bosses was a guy called John Hardigan, actually, who ended up being the CEO and and, and chair of of News Corp. And he was actually the editor of, of the Daily Telegraph when I started. I went straight out of school into journalism and- I think one of the things about journalism, certainly back then, and probably s- similarly today, is that you have to have a real curiosity. You've got to ask. You've got to mm. want to ask a lot of questions. You've got to want to learn a lot about stuff, and you've got to learn real quick on the job. And you've got to be tenacious. Yeah. And one day you're going to be sent out to Parramatta local courts to do a, a murder. Next day you're going to be over there doing a sports story. Next day you might be doing something on TV or entertainment. Um, particularly in those days, you you were just thrown anything in the morning. Mm-hmm. Like, like literally, if you were in general, you would just be told, right, today you're going to go out and do a a story on a on a lost dog or you're going to do a death knock, which was always the thing that none of us ever wanted to do, which was knock on the door of someone whose family member had died and try to get an interview with them. They were horrendous. I think tenacity as well as curiosity, and they'd be the two things I reckon that held you in good stead as a journo, as a young journalist, 
I mean, you know, just thinking about it now, they're probably the two things that would be the greatest attributes to anyone who wants to start up their own business. You've got to be tenacious and you've got to be curious. You've got to keep asking questions about how can we get better. Yeah, and you don't take no for an answer, do you? No. No, you can't. You can take no and think, well, I, I'm, how do I work around the no? But you do get no's. Yeah, you you know, we, we had coffee mugs made from the from, – from the, well, there's only, there's only two big buyers in Australia. There's the Woolworths Group and the Coles Group. So I won't say which one it was, but it wasn't Woolworths, <laughs> who knocked us back and said, nah, we, we don't need Four Pillars Gin in any of it. And they've got – we're talking hundreds and hundreds of stores, right, across yeah, their network. Of course. We made coffee mugs of our first rejection letter because that really gave us – it gives you the heebie-jeebies when you realise that you've just knocked, I don't know, probably 25 30% of the market out. Okay, so we're not going to be able to sell any of our booze in liquor land. Yep. That's a bit of a blow early, but we're obviously there now. And, and on, what, it took on, a few on, what, years. on what basis would were you rejected, do you Because think? there wasn't much. Honestly, when we started, I, I was just telling someone the other day, when we started making gin in 2013, hmm. and it seems crazy now to think about it, only just 10 years later, All right. is that we were talking about, the first question people would ask is, can you make gin in Australia? I thought all gin had to come from England, or mm. I thought all gin was British. And we're like, no, you can make gin in Australia, just like you can make wine in Australia and beer in Australia. Like, there's no law outlawed. There's, it's not outlawed making gin, but it just hadn't come from anywhere else, really, and it hadn't really evolved out of that. And we saw a little bit of gin being made in parts of Europe and a little bit, actually, funnily enough, made in, like, California, and then we'd seen one or two great little gin distilleries pop up in Australia. So we thought, why don't we, why don't we give that a crack? And it's a... It's a great drink. Mm. Gin's a great drink. It's an interesting drink to make, and it's a really great drink to drink. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, we gave it a shot, and here we are. All right, I'm going to come to the gin story in a second and the history of gin. But you started out as a journal. You what, four years? Mm -hmm. Okay, what made you go into journalism? You're a good writer at school and yep. pretty creative, were you? Yeah, all I wanted to do, I, 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 honestly, I wanted to be a sports reporter. I was good enough to be in the first 15 and you know, play the cricket first and that, but I was never going to be a wallaby, and I was never going to be in an Australian cricket team. I thought I wouldn't mind being a sports reporter. Um, and that was actually the first things I ever did was write for the local rugby rugby magazine, you know, do match reports and all that sort of stuff. And mm -hmm. I just thought, what a great way to see a lot of different interesting things. And I just stayed around there for four or five years. But so whilst everyone else was at university, like I went straight out of school to become a copy boy. Yep. And I just- They were hard to get too. Yeah, they were very, very, very competitive. Like they yeah. would take two or three kids on each of the newspapers. That's right. And then to get from a copy boy to a cadetship- which was the next step up, was even harder. You had to do exams and pass your shorthand and do all all number of things. And I actually got my cadetship on the on the Australian. And even though I'd never worked on the Australian, but because we were part of the tele, you know, we were the Telegraph, the Mirror, of the Australian, I got my cadetship on the um on the Oz actually with with, with a girl called Ann Connolly, who I just who this year just won her second gold Walkley. So she's done a lot better in journalism than I ever have. So she's a she's a brilliant journalist. Right? For the ABC, she did the she did a lot of stuff on Media Watch, a lot of stuff on Four Corners. She's um, she's an incredible journalist. And Lisa beat you for the uh, coveted number one. Yeah, Lisa Green. Yeah, never forgive her. She went on to be the editor of Women's Weekly, so she did pretty well as well. She has. How'd you find the deadlines? I love deadlines. I I love working under pressure. Not that I'm in retirement just yet, but I'm in a sort of a semi-retirement phase at the moment. We're just sort of figuring out what what's next and. I'm hopeless because I'm disorganized and, and without a deadline, I can sometimes just, you just sort of cruise. And then when people tell you, right, you know, you have to file that in 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. It's phenomenal how you can get yourself to focus. And I, um, I love that. I'm kind of notorious for it in my current work environment where I love the, 
chaos and the intensity of something that's happening right now. We have to, if we win this big award or something like that, and we have to have that media release, release out in 15 minutes, I know that I'll bash that out in 15 minutes. It'll be bang on. And I want to get it out perfect and fast. So I was always a fast writer and I, I still am. I still love writing good copy quick. It's just a, it's just a thing that I really, really enjoy. Well, why'd you break away from such a, a passion then? Well, funnily enough, <laughs> funnily enough, I'm knocking out a little travel column occasionally for News Corp at the moment that sits in the back of the escape section, and um, it's still one of my favourite things, writing. And I mean, I write a lot of copy for the for, for Four Pillars, what I have done over the last 10 years. I've wrote a bunch of wine books and a bunch mm-hmm. of wine guides, and I used to write a wine column every week for the Sunday paper for probably six or seven years, maybe longer. And I'm really enjoying writing again. So I maybe I'll write a book. Mm-hmm. I don't know about. Wait, have you got a couple of stories to tell, <laughs> haven't you? Yeah, I don't know if they'd be interesting enough because I, I I never read bi- biographies. Like, okay, I, I just I I don't, I don't read nonfiction, so I don't really know what what's out there. But yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd love to write something. Well, I think nonfiction's better than fiction. Yeah, apparently. Well, it is. <laughs> truth is truth is stranger than fiction. Let's be honest. I mean. It's, that's but right. I, um, writing is one of my is, is probably my great passion. I would never want to step away from it. But you did, you did. You made a call. You left News Corp. Yep, four years. Yep. Why? I wanted to travel because I was still, you know, I was probably four or five years out of school. I was probably twenty one, twenty two years old. <laughs> you know, like with all, with most of us, in, in you know, who quit jobs as, as young, headstrong young kids. I had a boss that I didn't like as much, and I thought <laughs> she was just trying to forced me to write copy that wasn't creative or individual. You know, you were very much writing to a style and a length. And I wanted to write stuff that I thought was a bit more colour, a bit more vibrancy, I suppose. So I just left and thought I'll go and see the world, go and work in a few pubs, go and go to Europe, do all that sort of stuff. And it was when I left that and went to Europe and spent two or three years in Europe and ended up at university in France. That's when I discovered wine. Now, what were you doing there? Mate, I was going out with a French girl, obviously. <laughs> what else? Only one. <laughs> yes. Well, at a time. But I was, um, I met a French girl in London and then I went to university to learn more French because I thought I might want to become a cook or like a chef. But then I realised, and, and I worked in, a, in a, a really quite famous cooking school up near, up the top of Burgundy, near a little town called Chablis, which oh, is yes. where the wine, the wine comes from. from. Yeah, yeah. And I worked up in a place called La Varenne. And I need to get my French up. So I went to university in a little town called Poitiers for about six months. And that's where my girlfriend lived. Yep. And then naturally we broke up <laughs> as soon as I arrived in Poitiers. She's like, I don't need this what, stupid Aussie. What, what are you doing here? Fuck <laughs> <laughs> So she, uh, she ditched me, obviously, and moved to Italy as far away from me as she could. And then I moved, went back to Lover and I did the cooking stuff. But cooking's too hard, mate. It took me, honest to God, two weeks to realise I'm no good in a kitchen. Like it's the pots and the pans, and the, it's just the relentlessness of cooking's hard, mm. hard job. Like being in a kitchen all the time. So, yeah. and unsociable hours and everything yeah, else, right? Yeah. The discipline is pretty, pretty exceptional. And and I just when we would have these students come across these like many American students, they would come across, do their cooking school for a week, and there was a guy who would turn up one of the days and say, "Right, I'm going to take you down to the wineries." And I would go down with him because I'd essentially be the translator, French French to English translator, and he'd talk, tell all the stories about Chablis mainly. Yep. And then he, he'd sling me a few bottles of wine at the end of the tour because the Americans would go and spend thousands of dollars on this overpriced you know, white burgundy. <laughs> and 
I thought, how good's his job? Yeah. Right, that's the best job ever. Like yeah. he doesn't have to do the cooking. Talks about the wine and the vineyards and the the vats and all this sort of stuff. And, I thought, and he says the same story to every crowd who turns yeah. up, and yeah. he makes a couple of grand a time. <laughs> and I'm thinking, great job. So I actually, literally, when I was leaving there and flying, um, no, not a flying. I was on a bus back to England. I remember sitting next to a, a Kiwi, an old bloke in Kiwi. He said his son is learning about wine and winemaking and wine business at this college in South Australia that I'd never heard of. It was called Roseworthy College. And I went, you can actually go and learn about wine business, like wine marketing it was called back in the day. And he goes, yeah, yeah, yeah my son's doing it. I'm like, that's it. It's perfect. That sounds just exactly what I wanted to do. So I remember I went back, moved back to Australia and applied for it, got in and packed my gear up and moved to the Barossa Valley. So the Roseworthy College was based in the Barossa Valley. It's where, where all the great Australian winemakers learnt their, learnt their trade from the from the 1930s right through to the end of the 90s when it moved into Adelaide and became part of Adelaide Uni. Okay, and was that the aim to be a what? A marketer, a writer, yeah. or a, a columnist, or what I was thought, it? I thought, I, could do, I thought I could do, you know, you're young, think you could do anything and everything. I don't think I've had much of an idea, but I thought I would love to work in the wine industry. And again, I'm thinking maybe probably not as a hands-on winemaker. Well, hold on. Before we go, what did you love about wine? Ah, oh, you know, I don't. You know, that, the French that, are French, brilliant in describing those, it, aren't they? Yeah, those first experiences in Chablis was something, you know, that I – I just realized I really liked it. I mean, I liked drinking. And then when I moved to Roseworthy, I don't I, I just loved the culture of of the grape growers and the winemakers and the people and the seasons and the difference between that block of Shiraz over there and that block of Shiraz there and the one that comes from the the sort of higher ground or the slaty ground and the one that comes from the clay soils. And it was just really bloody interesting. And and it always evolves. The beauty of wine is it's ever-changing. Even mm. the same wine that's bottled on, the, on that day, on that year, is different each time you open it over the next 10 years. It's just a phenomenally interesting and engaging and just sheer fun. And, I mean, at the end of the day, you're sinking piss with mates, right? It's a pretty good gig. And um, I just loved wine. You know, I'd already worked in a wine shop in London. I worked in a wine shop in Sydney. And then I got a job at a, a, at a wine shop just down in Double Bay here in Sydney and and – it was funny because I actually told this story the other day because a whole bunch of mates and we had just sold the second half of the company. And when I was about 27 or 28, so by this time I've done the university degree, and I've, and, but I'm back working in the bottle right, in the eastern suburbs. And all my mates who are 27 or 28 are rich and they're all, yeah. they all look like you. They're in fancy suits and they've been on the stock exchange. Yeah, the futures exchange was yeah, big yeah. damn. Future was huge. You know, and they were- they, Bond or, traders. Or they, or, they got, or they had just finished their law degrees and they were going to become you know partners at Ballons or whatever. And I was selling them bottles of Chardonnay for 12 bucks and driving the van. So I was delivering booze to their parents mainly. Oh, hi, Stuart. Oh, aren't you doing well? You're the van driver, you know, private school education. Oh, yeah, you know, going great. And I did feel like I had probably underachieved a little bit. But I think it's one of the, I think that's also a salutary lesson to kids, you know, if you want to start in business. I think you don't have to be a monster success at, 25, right? You, you know, you know, there's all these prodigiously talented young kids who become Yeah, really but were you, ha were you happy, Stuart? I you know what? I don't know if I was because <laughs> I was – my wife would tell you because she was my girlfriend at the time that I wasn't always very happy because I was just like, am I going to be a fucking liquor store van driver for the rest of my life? Like I feel like I've probably got a little more to offer here. But I just got offered a job in Melbourne. Like I, I literally answered the phone in the shop and there was a recruiter on the phone and, and, and he said, I need to – I'm trying to find this Stuart Gregor. I said, mate, that's me. <laughs> Seriously. And I just and, – and he said, oh, can you come and have an interview for a job as a – and this is where the journalism and the wine came together. It was the wine communications manager right. for a company called Mildara Blass, oh, yeah. which at the time was owned by 
had just been bought by Fosters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, and they had Yellow Glen and Jamison's Run and Annie's Lane and um, Wolf Blass. And the, this was the big play by Fosters, yeah, wasn't it? This, and, and the idea was, so it's now basically Treasury Wine Estates. Yep, right? um, yep. The role was to use a bit of your journalism skills to write the press releases. and write, I didn't really even know what PR really was. I mean, I'd heard about it and I'd studied a bit of it at my wine school. But you need to have all the relationships with all the media and all the influencers and all that sort of stuff. But you need to also have a great relationship with all the winemakers and everything else. And your job is just to communicate between the two, write the press releases, host the lunches, do the storytelling. And I'm like, that's the greatest job of all time. It's and almost I, like they guy in France, a little bit. Yeah, and I got it. So I moved to Melbourne, got the job, and that that's what set me off on – that's what got me here today, basically, was that, that job in 1996. When did you start knowing I was doing okay? What sort of feedback were you getting? I think early days. It was because it was a new sort of thing for a wine business to have, which was like a PR manager, right? A guy, mm. who, a guy or girl who would get – so we weren't getting the casks, or what were we getting? No, no, no. We were not, mate, we, we, one thing our boss had was he was he would only put wine in glass. Right, he was okay. not a cask guy. Not a cask guy called Ray King, great great MD actually, and um, so we were doing. You know, we would. Help. Oh, you're a classy MD. Yeah, we, we were class glass class man, but we would do lots of fun stuff and launch new. You know, it was a, it was a really quite an entrepreneurial little business. Okay. Right? And Wolf Blast was like yeah. still around, the human. Yep. I mean, he's not dead yet, but he was still around then. And and they would encourage us to launch new flavors, new new Riesling. We were right at the start of the screw cap, uh, 2002. So, no, 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 1997, I think we put our first um, Rieslings under screw cap and everyone hated the screw caps and why don't mm. you use cork? And I mean, now probably 80, 90% of Australian wines under screw cap, which is a good thing. Um, is it really? Yeah, it's a good thing. Screw cap. Is oh god, corked wines. I'd have really yeah, but isn't it? Isn't you know no, supposed to, you're supposed to undress the wine and uh, off you go. Nah, nah, I've never bought it, and I still don't buy it today. Screw caps are the greatest thing that have ever happened to wine, and all wine should be under screw cap. But I mean, there are well, most of the French don't listen to you because no, the Portuguese, you know, etc. Well, the Portuguese won't listen to you because they grow all the cork. That's right. And so it's the worst thing that could ever possibly happen to Portugal is everyone put their wine under screw caps. There is a little environmental issue with with the Stelvin cap as opposed to the cork, and I get that, but I would still rather buy a wine with a screw cap because you just know it's going to be okay. Yeah, but you can look at the cork. There are, isn't there, you can look at the well, cork. Point, yeah, looking at the that's, cork, that's, you've already pulled it? it out. You can't jam it yeah. back in if it's no good. Yeah, right. So I don't. But the poly, um, you know, the DM corks, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a conglomerate cork that, that is almost without taint called D, D-I-A-M, and they're very good. So if you do have to have a cork, as long as you stick a DM in it, I'm okay. But okay. I can never find my bloody corkscrew. Ever. We went to a school BYO dinner, like at, at the school hall uh, for my, my son. And we were leaving it. And I'm like, God, I am not going to take a bottle with a cork in it because I'll guarantee you we'll turn up at the school hall. No one will have a bloody corkscrew. Right. Turned up at the school hall. No one had a corkscrew. <laughs> and I'm like, hello, I just bought four bottles and they all have screw caps. I'm going to go okay here. The bloke next to me is filthy. He's got his, and then he's trying to, you know, knock in, uh, knock in the cork. <laughs> no, that doesn't work too well. No, did not work well. So no, that's the wine, that's the wine journey, and I still love wine very much t- today. I actually, I actually just did a little bit more wine study in the last couple of months when I was recuperating with my knee, just because I was thinking of things to do. So I just took a took a wine course and um, just passed the other day, actually. So okay, so what was next? Well, I guess I guess by now, well, well, what happened in in the end of the nineties was that I was again thinking because I get kind, of, I, I'm probably a bit restless, and I think that's another reason why you end up owning or starting up businesses and multiple businesses or whatever. And I think I got to ninety nine, two thousand, and I'm thinking, 
what's next. And one of my great friends had just done her MBA at the Melbourne Business School and she talked yep. me into doing a master's there. So I took the, the marketing strain of the MBA at Melbourne. Okay. Um, did that. I'd also just met Cameron McKenzie and Cameron was meant to be running in the 2000 Olympics. He's ended up being my partner in Four Pillars, as co-founder at Four Pillars, along with Matt Jones. But it was it was Cameron who I met in 1999. He'd already run in the 96 Olympics. He was about to run in 2000. He ran with, he used to train with Freeman and that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. And I thought, I'll do this master of marketing because I want to become, you know, I think one of the other things that before offering sage advice and that sort of stuff is never stop trying to improve your own skill set. And I remember thinking then, okay, well, I've got this slightly crappy agricultural college undergraduate diploma in wine marketing. It's not really going to get me far outside of a very niche wine world. So I went and I thought a proper master's from you know, a real school like Melbourne Business School, part of Uni of Melbourne, you know, that's better. And while I was there, I actually met a, um, I met a really smart girl who would often be at because often because I was working during the day and all the course, courses were at night. We did a part time about four four year part time degree, post grad degree, and she would always be there on time. She would always have the best notes and she was super smart. And I would often get there a little bit drunk because I will have been at hosting a Wolf Blast wine lunch during the day, and I've had I've had seven bottles of wine and a few schooners, and sometimes I would doze off, and she would always help me out. And I'm like, you, you got to be my business partner. <laughs> You're great. And she ended up being my business partner. We actually took an entrepreneurship subject with a guy called George Beaton, who was an amazing lecturer, and he only did it on weekends because um, he was he had a great consultancy business and he'd been through all the big consultancies. And he did an entrepreneurship, and we actually I, I said to her, "We should you have to basically pitch a business idea mm -hmm. in the, in the course." Okay. And I said, "We should have our own wine marketing PR business. And we should call it Liquid Ideas." Great idea. It's still called Liquid Ideas today. It exists yep. 23 years later. Mm -hmm. And you and me should be partners in it. She's like, but I don't know anything about wine. And I said, well, that, I've got that covered. Yep. You, you know a lot about business and you're smart. And so we did. We both quit our jobs and started up Liquid Ideas February 2000. And then um, her and I split up about five years later. We weren't lover partners. We were business partners. That sounds a bit weird. Um and I took the business, I took the Liquid Ideas name and the Sydney clients and set up in Sydney and she kept all the Melbourne clients and stayed in Melbourne because I wanted to move back to Sydney by that stage, had had a first baby, all that sort of stuff. So so how do you go ahead? So for all those entrepreneurs out there listening to this, you go, yep, I'm, I'm really keen to hear how I can grow my business or get it started in the right way. Where do you get clients from? Where do you get customers from? Who's going to back you? You know, I've never, haven't used you before. What'd you do? Well, you steal clients, obviously. I mean, that's what you, the first thing you've got to do is you've got to have. I remember we we sat down the first day, so we started this business in her it's a classic story. We started her, this business in her kitchen in Footscray. Yep. And there were the two of us there, and we're like, "Well, what do we do day one?" And it's like, "Well, we better get a letterhead, and we better get some business cards." Mm. And I said, oh, "We better get some clients as well." And so there were a couple of businesses that we'd worked that I'd worked with at Mildara Blass some smaller parts of their of, of their big portfolio. And I said, but I said, I reckon they'll let us do a bit of work for some of the smaller clients that probably don't get the attention from the big corporate beast. Yep. So if you can imagine today you're in a giant portfolio and we just so we picked a couple of little ones like Balgauni. We'd made some friends in Coonawarra. Oh yeah. And we picked up a little winery called Rymel. And we said to them, look, here's what we can do. We'll, we'll charge you a couple of grand a month. 
but we'll send you press releases. Oh, you put, it, oh you put them on a retainer? Yeah, yeah as soon as, right. as quick as you can. Okay. And we'll send out media releases and we'll host events when you come to, to Melbourne. We'll introduce you to James Haller because I'd met all these famous wine media because in those days, lots of people wrote wine columns, you know? Yep. And I said, you know, we can get your wines in front of James Halliday or we can get your wines and we can meet the famous, the, the fancy guy who runs the restaurant and puts wines on a wine. I said, that's all they want because wine, most winemakers are agriculturalists, right? Yep. They're farmers and yep. they get increasing, you know, some of them are increasingly sophisticated. But at the end of the day, most of them don't really know what to do once the wine has been made and the labels have been put on. Yep. You know, well, and they just give it to their distributor and say, well, you just go and sell it. Well, do you get involved with that? If that's one aspect of Do you also get involved in- the design of the labels? Yep. Well, yeah, we used to. We used to get involved in the design of lots of labels. I mean, I was I was integral in the design of the Four Pillars label, as an example, many years later. Yeah. But yeah, absolutely. We would get involved with the design. Well, we would tell them what we think that some of the ideas that we thought they, they should do, you know? Okay. You need to stand out. The, you know, wine labeling has been, until the last maybe five or ten years, incredibly boring yes. and monotone, right? Yeah. It's white label with cursive writing and the vintage is in red and there's a castle on it and it says, jibba, 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 right? And so you can't stand out that way. Because I remember Wolf Blast was actually one of the first guys who told me, you know, he goes, you know, I was, when I was German, you know, I come to Australia and everything was the same. So he just said, I'm going to make the red one, the yellow one, the gray one, the black one. Right, and remember, you know, and Wolf Glass yep. wines were so easy to recognize That's on a right. shelf because yep. they stood out. And we've taken a lot of that with Four pillars. Yep. Right. We got the black one, the yellow one, the green one, the blue one. Yep. Right. And it's really how easy. many? How many discerning? What percentage is really discerning palettes in Australia as opposed to? I've been really well marketed to. So you know, marketing is in in essence you have to make great product first of all. Like, are there that many people who can tell the nuanced difference between our olive leaf gin and our rare dry gin? Probably not primer, not on the face of it. Correct. But when they come to do, and this is one of the other things that you need to do, if, you, if, you, if you're marketing a product, right, you need to bring it to life. Right? You can't just sit it on a shelf and expect someone to love it. Right? So we were adamant. This is right back from the, these days when I was back in this wine industry is you need to bring these products to life. You need to show people how you make them, why they're different from anyone else, why they're more, why you're going to like this brand. Mm-hmm more than the brand that you already exist. Because yep. if we go to the gin context for a minute, it's like no one walked into a bar anywhere in the world in 2013 and looked at the shelf behind the bar and yeah. said, if only there was an Aussie gin there. Yeah. But no one was thinking that way. No. And we had to give that bartender and the customer a reason to say, I want that Aussie gin there. And what you have to do is bring it to life. We would do hundreds and hundreds of events, small tastings, consumer tastings, trade tastings, and where we tell the story about these gins. And if you taste our rare dry gin and our olive leaf gin next to each other, you can see the difference. And that's a that's a spark moment for most people. They go, oh, my God, I thought all gin tasted the same. Now I realize I kind of like that citrusy one rather than that olivey one because, you know, half the world loves olives in their martini and half the world loves lemon yeah. twists in their martini. Yeah. So we want to make a gin for both of them. Yep, agreed. One of the things that we decided very early was that there's not just one – like if you remember, you know, even fifteen years ago, each brand had one gin. So you either took it or left it. Hendrix, one gin. Bombay Sapphire, one gin. Gordon's, Gordon's one gin. Yep. Tanqueray, one gin. Yep. Now Tanqueray, five gins. Gordon's ten gins. Hendrix, six gins. Because they've realised you put in 
every egg in the one gin basket. And if someone goes, I don't like that, Hendrix. And I'm going to go to the opposition. I'm going to go to Four Pillars. Yeah. And, and, and at Four Pillars, we're saying, oh, you want a bloody Shiraz gin or you want a Yuzu gin or you want the rare dry classic gin. You, get a, you give people options or you can have the ready to drink cans. So it's, I think one of the things that, that we learned early, and I learned this right back in the wine trade, is that give people, like even, even so while I was at uni back, back in the day, I was working at the cellar door of a little company called Rockford, mm-hmm. right, which is a great little winery in the Barossa Valley, right mm-hmm. on Crondorf Road. Yep. And he's one of the cult winemakers of the Barossa. Was then and still is today, Robert O'Callaghan. You've still got to sell it, but don't you? Yeah, mate, mate. And you've got to have great you, loyal you, customers. You may, be, you may be great at making it, but you've still got to sell it, right? It's, making it is easy. Selling it is hard. Right, because making anything good is not. I mean, it's it's complicated and an, and an art form. But selling it and then selling it again next year and then the year after, that's the hard bit. And Rockford used to, we used to have a really busy cellar door, and we would have these two. And all the wines were sort of not. I mean, they were serious wines for mm. proper wine lovers and all that sort of stuff. Really good body. And yeah, context, but the right? two the two wines that would sell the most at the cellar door. One was called Alicante Boucher, which was an incredibly sweet. Pink rosé. Rosé, right, okay. Nine bucks. What year was this? 90, 90, 94, 95. Yeah, because they're, they're in vogue now, aren't they? No, they are, yeah, yeah. yeah but this yeah, was okay. early doors of the of the rosé yeah. revolution, yeah, whatever. Okay. And then we would have a white Frontenac, which was even sweeter. Because Robert would say, you know, if people come in here and three of the four people want to drink our expensive Shiraz and everything else, but there's one person who wants to drink something sweet or something pink, Yep, we've got to have a product for them. Yep. Like don't force them to try to like something they don't necessarily like. So listen to your customers. And if your customers want to drink white Frontenac, then make a bloody white Frontenac. Because we don't want to lose a customer. You know, we've got to think about people who come and visit our distillery. If there's a group of six people, I'll guarantee you one of them doesn't like gin. Right? You've got six mates. You sit down at dinner and you go, oh, who's up for a gin and tonic? And four of them might go, yeah, I'll have a gin and tonic. And they go, ah, fuck, no, nah, I don't like gin. I'll have, I'll have a schooner. Thanks. Mm. So sell beer. You know, we always make sure that there's a beer available. We always make sure that there's wine available. Like we, you, you don't just proselytize to people because if that one person also happens to be the person driving the car, they go, no, nah, I'm not going to that bloody gin distillery. They hate bloody gin. You lose six, five potential customers. So listen to your customers and don't be too bloody precious. Okay, listen to your customers. But how do- yeah, but I'm paying you to create a market, aren't I, if we've liquid ideas? Yeah. So how do you create a market for me then? You listen to some customers. You've got yeah. to go and get me some customers, don't you? Yeah. Otherwise, I'm just flogging it through Celador and yeah. the old sign-on. And we, Back we in the old days, shot. I mean, the way I would get you – so the way I would get you customers was what we used to call third-party endorsement, right? So I would, I'll go and find some people whose opinions matter to say your wines are good. So first of all, we're going to have to go. Ah, we're going to have to go you. over there and make sure your wines are as good as you think they are. The That's old, one of the advantages the I have. Your testimonial play. Yeah, bloody oath. Testimonials are everything, right? We've been using testimonials at Four Pillars every day the, since the day we started, right? Which is bartender from fancy bar. Yep. Says our gin's unreal. Oh, that's not bad. That's good. You know, and you have to make stuff that's unreal. That's the thing. Right, the base level at the moment in, in any category, certainly in our drinks category or wine or, or beer, is world-class is the entry level. People don't want anything that's that, – that's, they don't want to drink something just because it comes from around the corner or around their, their little farming mate made it. They'll buy it once because it's a nice thing to do. It was, on a, it was at those farmer's markets and everything else. But they'll never buy it again unless it is so good 
they feel almost compelled to change a lifetime habit of buying Brand X, Bombay Sapphire. But do you know the hard work it takes to change a person's decision-making process from going, I have been a lifelong drinker of Hendrix, but now I'm going to drink four pillars. And not only am I going to drink four pillars, I'm going to tell everyone else to drink four pillars. Yeah, that's an enormous push. That is a bloody big job. And we've been doing that relentlessly for 10 years to tell people, get off your Hendrix and get onto your four pillars. And that's where the whole of the marketing mix comes into play. Everything we have to do, every single time we a customer touch point, whether it's a website or an event or a or a tasting or a shelf promotion, it's got to be better than the better than the one that they have already been buying. Otherwise, because if we're not better than them, what right do we have to steal their market from them? Right. So we just had to be better. We had to win more awards. We had to be better value. We had to have nicer people as sales reps. We had to have better people at our cellar door. We had to have got to be better than everyone. All the time, every year. Otherwise, you're not gonna you're not gonna win any any form of market share against brands that are fifty times your size, that have a hundred times your budget, right? Hendrix is owned by William Grant, who happen to also own you know Glenfiddich and yeah. small brands like this. And we're up against Tanqueray and Gordons that are owned by Diageo, who just own Johnny Walker and yeah. Smirnoff. And we're up against gins like Beefeater, who are owned by Pernod Ricard, who happen to own Chivas Regal. You know, like we're up against multi-billion dollar businesses around the world. All right. Well, while we're talking about it then, so you're doing pretty well in your in your business, your PR business. Yeah. Okay. When did, where did Four Pillars come from then? <laughs> well, the bloke I told you about, the runner. Yeah. Right? So you've met him. Cameron. I met him 10 years before. Mr. McKenzie. Mr. McKenzie. We've become good mates. I've moved back to Sydney. He's running a couple of wineries in the Yarra Valley. You split your business, effectively? Yeah. So Angie, who's my first business partner, she's down running a thing called Dig Marketing. Liquid Ideas is up in Sydney. And Cameron and I, each year, are tooling around making a bit of wine, right, just for fun. When we made these couple of little wine brands with another mate, each time there's us two and another mate, and we make some wine. But it's not serious endeavor. And we're probably in about 2010 or 2011, and he's like, I just think we – I don't want to he, – he's working for the man. I'm still working for myself and Liquid Ideas is going quite well and all that sort of stuff. And he's like, well, I don't want to work for the man anymore. I want to do something myself. I want to start my own business and I want you to be in the business with me. And I'm like, sure. What are we going to do? You know, I mean, we drinks is our thing. You know, he was running wineries. I was doing all this consulting. At the, by this time, Liquid Ideas was had clients like Diageo and clients like Pernod Ricard and clients like – we were doing a lot of work for CUB at the time. You know, we were doing the Vic Bitter campaigns, the Booney Doll, all manner of crazy things. And and I said, well- Well, a good clientele. I said, we could make beer. And he's like, oh, no, there's already too many beers. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. He said, we could make tonic because we were drinking a gin and tonic. And I went, yeah, okay, tonic, but that's just soft drink. I mean, that's boring. Mm. Um, although- profitable <laughs> in hindsight maybe tonic wouldn't have been a bad idea pretty pretty good play and then i said well what about gin we drink we drink gin and 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 it was literally as as simple as that and he he goes yeah why don't we make gin i mean you know we've got all these great botanicals in australia we've got all these lem- you know the lemon myrtles and we've got yeah. all these interesting flavors and everything else and all these native bush foods and all this sort of stuff that was sort of becoming a little bit popular then if you know sort of 2010 2012 and like I said, well, off you go. Learn how to make gin. And I said, I'm not going to do it, <laughs> obviously, <laughs> but I'll pull the business side of it together. I'll figure out how we can how we can fund it. I'll figure out how how we can brand it. 
we always had a drinking game that was just called the Four Pillars of Humanity. So that was just going to be the name. It meant not, it, it didn't mean anything. It was just a drinking game that I don't need to explain to you now. It's okay. quite funny. But um, so we never even had to. We never even had a discussion about the name. I said, "Well, it's obviously, it's just going to be called Four Pillars." And he's like, "Sure." So nothing more profound than a game. No, I mean we've retrofitted, but, but, but a great title, great title. <laughs> yeah, we've retrofitted a few things on it, you know, and and then we discovered, of course, you know, the, the four pillars of banking yeah, and the four right. pillars of wisdom, and we, you know, so we're like, okay, we'll we'll stick with four pillars, and then we also wanted to say, well, Australian gin, we don't want to be one of these gin brands that tries to look old immediately. We want to say proudly established twenty thirteen. We want to be oh, modern, okay, yeah, okay, modern, modern and Australian. Yeah. And we Did don't you, want to fake anything. Had to be Australian. Yeah, well, he was gonna. It was always gonna be made in the Yarra Valley because that's where he lived. Yeah. So, but buying Australian from from Australians is that a big play? Yeah, it resonates. It's, look, Australians love great success stories. Do they? Yeah, they do. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I'm a non. I'm a non-believer in the tall poppy syndrome. There you go. Okay. Non-believer. I think Australians don't hate people who are successful. They hate people who are successful and become wankers. And that's when the tall poppy syndrome kicks in. It's when you no longer seem to reflect the ideals that we Australians sort of like to hold ourselves to account for. You know, you seem like you used to be a decent bloke, but now you're a dick. Take, taking yourself too seriously. Take yourself too seriously. You can't deal with criticism. You, you get bitchy with the media who probably have hand-fed you your whole career and sucked up to you for years. I'm thinking of the Australian rugby coach at the moment, but anyway, <laughs> shouldn't say that. And you just become – people like to see – in this country more, more so than the US that you, you, you retain a sense of – you're still grounded. Yep. You still go to the shops and, you yeah. know, I don't know, what, whatever. Do we still, do we still have that larrikinism? Is that – I hope so. Is that still around there or not? I hope so. I hope so. I mean, I think there's less of it now. I just think in general, in community in general – Without going down the the rabbit hole of wokeism and everything else, because there's like, a bit of that floating around. Oh, shit, shit, there's a lot, and you know, and I'm probably, I'm in a, I'm a fifty four year old white man struggling with 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 the new with the new world because you know I'm probably a little bit more um I was going to say flamboyant, but that'll do and, and sometimes well, direct yeah. yep. and sometimes a little bit opinionated and 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 I try to be very funny. That's yep. one of my things. Um, oh, you try, yeah, <laughs> and I fuck, and it's really hard. Like it's hard to get a handle on what you can and can't say now. So you tend, so you to, can't be an individual anymore. Well, yeah, I think you can. You just got to be more cautious. Isn't that it's pretty? A, that's pretty sad sometimes, isn't it? I think it is. I, but Can I express a view and take it back. And, yeah. yeah, I know. I think like all pendulums, it's going to swing a long way in one yeah. direction. And it'll find itself a balance back. All right. So you're sitting down and you guys have worked out, okay, we're going to call it four pillars of the back of a game that we play. Yeah. Okay. Was there ever a business plan? Yep. Do they actually exist? Yep. And do they actually do you actually follow them through? Or where no. you throw them out after the first couple of weeks? Like what happens? Okay, so the business plan so there's a so we got a guy involved, the third partner's a guy called Matt Jones, right? And Matt came out of a, a of an agency called Jack Morton. So he's a he's a big they did big events and big brand activation. So, you know, if Samsung want to launch a new mobile phone in 40 markets around the world. They'll get Jack Morton to do those huge activations in Martin Place or in oh, okay. you know, in Times Square and they'll do a whole manner of trade shows and all that sort of stuff. So amazing oh. agency. Not putting the ads on the TV like it used to in the old days, but bringing events and activations to life. Right? Okay. And, they were, and he was great at that, but he was also very great at sort of strategy and pulling together decks and pulling together 
my mainly loose ideas of how we were going to do this and Cameron's ideas about how to make the gin and pulling it together into something that at least looks feasible. Because the one, the one thing you need to do with a business plan, it's less a business plan, more, you know, it might be an IM, an information memorandum or something like that. But it's, if you need to go and get, and, and this is one thing that I would, again, say to people, because I, I often have conversations now with quite a few young people who are trying to start businesses. Mm. And the, the key to raise, I said, well, at, at this stage, I said, we need to raise half a million bucks. Right, we'll put in two fifty each. And you're and you're all and you're all a third, a third, a third at this yep, stage. Yep, still still right through to the end. And you believe in that? Yep. And what we said was we're going to give forty percent of the equity away to to mates, twenty people who will buy two percent each. Oh, okay. And sell it to them for X. Yep. X was way lower than it should have been, but you know we got to start with something. We got to start with something. Right. We wanted we wanted to start with cash in the bank, so we didn't want to start. One thing people can sniff is. Brands who are doing stuff on the cheap, brands who are doing stuff on the smell of an oily rag. Whilst it's nice and romantic, oh, you know, it can't last. You're better off to be better funded than underfunded, right? And so we said, right, we want, we need a million bucks. Now well, that sounds good in theory. You got to try to get the funding, right? Yeah, well, you do. But you see, the other thing is, you've got to be realistic with your funding. I mean, I see so many IMs and young people starting businesses today, and they go, right, we got to. Pre-money val of five million on this business. I'm like, mate, you haven't fucking done a thing. Yeah. Like, Why is your business worth five million dollars? We didn't value our business five million dollars until we were selling a couple of hundred thousand bottles of gin a year, right? Okay. And so this ridiculous concept that you're overvaluing your business from the get-go. We undervalued our business, which meant we could get people in on a good business case that Matt was able to pull together. Great presentation skills, which Matt and I had, so we were able to be compelling to potential investors. Realistic amounts of money we asked them for. You know, when we started, we asked our investors for 25 grand each. So we basically paint, which is is a bit of money for for some people, but petty change for others. Yeah, sure. Some of them who came in were our first employees who had to borrow money from their dad. And some of them had to, you know, they didn't have mortgages, but people had to borrow money from friends and family to get up the 25. Others- wrote a check because they're rich yep. farmers or whatever. I find that pretty fascinating that here you are as an expert, as a marketer, yeah. PR man, and you've got your other two colleagues into this together, and it sounds like a formidable team, mm. and you're undervaluing it. Yep. So because you're not overvaluing it, and yet, as you say, you hear out there all day long, others who haven't got half that skill set yeah. trying to get themselves Correct. up to a number. Oh, that's really fascinating. Well, we hadn't, we hadn't ever, I mean, let's be honest, we hadn't, this is, probably let's call it 11 years ago we hadn't ever done this before like raising money the, the business that i started was the oily rag business although we were reasonably well funded angie and i in that liquid ideas business yep. but that was a service business that could we, we weren't trying to sell a product to woolworths we weren't trying to sell a product to the export markets to the duty-free stores Have you ever walked through a duty-free mm. liquor store yep. like there's a lot of money being spent promoting these brands and this right yep. you can't just turn up there looking like a nuff nuff yep but like you just the, the buyer might buy you, but the consumer won't take you off the shelf. So the next time there's a review, you're out. You're out. Yeah. So this was a different set of circumstances. And I think people want, you know, we offered them a great story. We had knowledge, you know, too many people are setting up. But none of you had run a distillery before. None of us had run a distillery before, but one of us had run a winery. That's Cameron. Okay. I had all the background of working with distilleries. You know, I, I I had on my CV, he's consulted the Bundy Rum and Johnny Walker, Shivas Regal, and he launched the Beefeater 24. So I had a pretty good CV. And one of the okay. things I worry about 
some of these people's not just starting spirits businesses, but any number of businesses now just don't have that background. They don't have those connections. You know, I was the one who was able to ring the Dan Murphy's guy after Liquorland told us to get stuff. Yep. <laughs> and get us ranged. So I, we used that well. We we went in another funding round, maybe two, three, two years later. We soon realised that one, we're going to run out of money, and two, that how much did you get in your first time round? Five hundred. How long did it last? Two and a bit years. That's not bad. Yeah. And we what started selling some booze. And what do they? Okay, so what do they get you? So where's the distilleries in what Victoria? Yep, Hillsville. Okay, how big is that, and how much does it cost to set up, or do you outsource well, we put, that, or well, what do you yeah, do here? Yeah. So in the first year, so from 2013 to 2015, we were just renting space from a mate in a winery, right? Yes. So we made it look beautiful, but it was just in the back of a mate's shed, and we always sit right and in Warren. <laughs> great photos. We made great photos, mate. Those those photos are iconic. They're That's all right. over, right? There's this beautiful photo of Cameron in the still. <laughs> Get great photography, like yeah. simple things like that. Yep. But right? I had a mate. Who was the best photographer yeah, in the Because perception country. is reality. Mate, it is. And I said, we've got to make everything look beautiful. The first yeah. ever photo shoot was shot at my house, getting tablecloths that make look good, borrowing fancy little knickknacks and all that sort of stuff. But it was all shot at my house. We weren't going to pay for a studio. Yeah, okay. We had to make it look beautiful. Right. And then we made the we got Anson Smart, the best photographer around, to shoot the distillery. Okay. And if you look really close, you can see that the top of the the top of the still is, I reckon. Eight centimetres from the roof. Like, we, we were looking at it going, and we're not going to fit that in. <laughs> anyway, so, but we always wanted to have a, a home base in the heart of the Yarra Valley, okay. and we found an old timber yard, like an old shed on the edge of the main drag of Hillsville, and it just happened to be 150 metres from Cameron's house Yep, on the walk between Cameron's house and the pub. So, that was a well-worn path with him and I, with he and I. Okay. And I'm like, mate, how good would that shed be? if we could ever buy that. And one day he saw the local real estate agent out the front and he rings the real estate agent going, are you selling that shed? And he said, yeah. And I said, well, I'm coming down here today and we're going to buy it. Right, okay. And that's when you have to start borrowing money. That's when you need to do a second second raise. Yeah. We said to our, our punters, right, you got, in a, you got in nice for your 25 grand for 2%. Now, if you want to keep 2%, you need to give us another 50. And they all came in bar one. Yeah, okay. And then we- put out a bit more. So we diluted our shareholdings down to about, you know, 18, 19%, that sort of thing each. Okay. But with an idea that we would still be building a business that would be worth millions in the future. All right. How so, long does it how long does it take from commencement to first bottle being produced, manufactured, created? I reckon it took us about 15 months. Okay. And in the world of marketing, are you selling ahead and getting orders before product is delivered? Yep. Can you do that? We did because we did a um, we did what's called a possible. You remember those crowd equity? We did a possible campaign. What does that mean? It was a it's now called virtual. I think you know just where people where crowd equity an equity funding campaign where basically we said to people, hi, we're four pillars. If you want to buy our first batch of gin, click on here, pay sixty bucks, and you'll get one of batch number one. And we would be very lucky to get that, right? It'd be very, very lucky to get that. My exclusive. mother, my mother still has bottle number one, batch number one, and she thinks it's going to be. Worth something. She's probably day. right. She's probably right. I think it'll be worth 75 bucks. Right? <laughs> um, and that's, I think, the first sign I thought, oh, shit, this might be work, is that we sold that first batch out in 72 hours. Yeah, right. Because, we again, we, had, we, made the, um, we made the possible campaign look pretty. We sold, you know, we said if you buy 10 bottles, we'll do a private tasting for you and we'll give you the, I don't know, T-shirt or an extra whatever. 
And a couple, again, a couple of mates did that, you know, got into that first round. But what that did, that very first round, so that was, we hadn't even made the gin at that point. That's what I was saying. You had, said, right, you, you get in now and you'll get the gin in four weeks or yep. whatever. That also gave us permission to go to Dan Murphy's and yep. say, hey, listen, there's a bit of a, people want this stuff. And we were clever in that we made sure that all of the people who we thought could influence decision-making in our space. Yep got that email about the possible campaign. So they looked at it and they also could see that lots of people were clicking on and buying this stuff. So I think that really helped us with our first try to get into the retail trade. We said, look, people want this gin. You better arrange it in your um, in your liquor store. And are you doing And we got a good distributor as well. We got a little distributor. A mate of mine had a little distribution business. You know, he imported tequila and he imported, yeah. sold a few runs. So he knew everyone. That. Yeah, so he knew everyone. So we said to him, he's Vanguard, James France, still a great mate of mine. Yep. Um, we said to him, mate, you need to take on this Australian gin, and he was as sceptical as anyone. And he's like, really, do I need an Australian gin? I said, mate, it'll be, it'll be the biggest product in your in your book within a year. And he just pissed himself. <laughs> he goes, mate, you're kidding. We've got, um, what was it called? Saint-Germain elderflower liqueur, which at the time was quite popular. <laughs> I said, mate, we'll be bigger than that in a year or two, no troubles at all. And he like, rolled his eyes as if I was an enormous wanker. But also something else I was trying to think through here is, you're building the relationships with the retailers, the distributors, etc. When you're also building a gin community, yeah, and that's half the magic, isn't it? Yeah, well, you've got to build. So we 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 always thought you've got to build customers, every like direct customers are great. So we built a great website. We made sure that we sold booze on the website. Right? Okay. We made sure that we had great events. So like we built a community, and and the first people on that database were the people who came into that into that first equity raise, right? The, the crowd funders were the first 500 people on our database. And we told those 500 people, right, yeah, well, we're going we're gonna to throw a little gin party in a bar. You're all invited, come along and, you know, and so they came and then they all brought a friend or two and we said subscribe to our email and we got 120,000 on our database now. We got about the same on our Facebook community. We got about the same on our Instagram and it's – Knowing how to manage your direct communities, because each one of those people have has opted in to follow a company, yeah. Right? Which is one thing that most of us don't really do very often. No. We only follow companies we really love, like maybe a sand shoe brand, you know, a sneaker brand you yeah. love, or a, or a music brand you love, or a, a clothing and what, brand. Why am I following it? Because you like the content. Like we don't bore you with shit. We don't try to sell you all the time, although we do try to sell. Yeah. We often give you opportunities to buy stuff that others can't. We'll invite you first to our crazy parties, and a liquor brand needs to have crazy parties, right? Yep. Because that's fun. Yep. And we will show you, always show you behind the scenes. One of the things that we were always really adamant about is that if we weren't willing to show people how we make the gin, that's when people don't really trust the process. Oh, the transparency yeah, part. Yeah, so it? we play yeah, okay. transparency beyond belief, right? Come over and have a look. We do it every time if people want to come to the distillery. Come out the back. We'll show you exactly how we make it. We'll show you the stills. We'll show you how we turn them on. We'll show you the buckets full of botanicals and all that sort of stuff. We think that's one of the key things. Matt, Matt always used to say that it was one of the key elements of craft, rather the term, you know, craft distilling or craft beer, yep. is transparency in process. Your willingness to show people how you make stuff, because I think when when you're not craft is when you close the doors and say no, you don't need to see that because it's all just being made in one giant fermenter out the back. Mm -hmm. So we're very, very, very conscious that we want people to be able to see how we make stuff. So you've got to get all those elements. Like you never stop thinking about how you can do more fun and interesting things 
to continually engage customers because, you know, we're in a world of very low attention <laughs> and very low attention span. That's the watching my 17-year-old son just scrolling through Snapchat and Instagram is just yep. terrifying. The, the four seconds you might spend on one page. It's, yep. um, so increasingly, you've got to make really, really fast, clever. I mean, TikTok's a bit difficult because TikTok's a lot populated by people who are under 18. So for alcohol brands, TikTok's difficult. Yep. So, yeah, you just have to never stop thinking about what it is you can do to, to gain further attention for your brand. You're listening to No Limitations with special guest Stu Gregor. On our next episode, I sit down with Phil Kearns, CEO of AV Jennings and former captain of the Wallabies. It was a super special moment because on that tour, Michael Liner was captain and he got injured. And so I had to step up. And I remember Bob Dwyer actually, he, when he told me, I was sort of a bit in shock, I've got to say. And uh, it's probably the most stupid question of all time, but I said it anyway. <laughs> I said, Bob, what do you want me to do? And he said, I've picked you as captain because of the way you play, the way you train, the way you are with the, the team. He said, so just do more of that. And I thought, okay, that's pretty easy. So, <laughs> so that was how it was set up. Just be yourself. Be sure to join us on our next episode. And now back to the show. So what's changed since, I don't know, since you first started out in, in your original business to now how you engage an audience? It, well, I mean, everything has changed in terms of the media has changed. Yeah. So when I started Liquid Ideas, there was no Instagram, no Facebook, no – mate, I got my first mobile phone probably in 96, 97. Mm -hmm. But you, there was no photographs on it. There was no scrolling through pages of, on the internet on your mobile phone. The media has changed immeasurably. Yep. Right? And in those days, if you wanted someone to write about your gin or your wine or anything else, you would talk to the newspaper writer right, who would yeah. write the article on the Thursday. Yep. And each week he would choose a different winery to profile and you just wanted to make him choose yours. So you yes. would take him out to lunch or you would show him better wines yeah. or you would take him to the vineyard. So, and now- Do I need them anymore? Well, he doesn't exist anymore. There aren't many of him anymore or her, right? There aren't many wine columns in newspapers because there aren't many newspapers, but there are still important- Influences and this, you know, this begat. You know, we used to say twenty years ago, we would say for uh, Liquid Ideas, this business was influencing the influencers. Now, now they're fucking influencers everywhere, right? You know, influencers yep. on Instagram. Let's just use Instagram as an example. Yep. But what you have to be is exactly like you had to be then. Is the same now? Is that you need to check on a person's? You need to really understand if a person is actually influential, right? So, like, for me, I always used to say, okay, who's an influencer in the world of wine? Okay, it's that guy who buys all the wine from Maryvale because Maryvale and Sydney have got 50, 50 restaurants and bars, right? The, that guy is an influencer. Yep. I don't care if he's you know, naked in a, on, a, on an Instagram page or anything else. He's a genuine influencer, and he can influence people in my category. Find those real influential people and work on them. Work on building relationships with them. Work on selling to them. Work on making, on building their confidence. Work on them understanding your brand, and that may be old James Halliday, or it might be the guy who buys the wine at Maryvale, or it might be the corporate who has the keys to the Clayton Ute cellar, and he buys hundreds of bottle, hundreds of dozen bottles of wine each year for the boardroom. Right? There's a lot of influential people. You just need to know. You need to work really hard finding out who they are. Don't. Go for the simple, easy, that person's got 8,000 followers on Instagram. 
I'll just send them my free booze because the fact is they may not be able to even remotely capable of influencing anyone's choice in booze. They might be very good at influencing your choice in buying a bikini, but I'm not selling bikinis. I'm selling gin. So I want to find someone who I think can help me sell gin. What did you have to change along the way? What didn't work out and you quickly adjusted? We were lucky in the gin world that we didn't make that many mistakes. The major mistakes we made were when you appoint when you appoint distribution partners, the hardest thing when you're selling a product, as soon as you leave Australia, where you know oh, okay. everything and yeah. everyone, it becomes very difficult. I soon learned that there's no such thing as an export strategy, right? You have to have a strategy for every market that you sell to, right? This whole idea, I just thought, because I was kind of naive and I'd never really exported anything, I just thought I would write an export strategy, right? Which is just basically going offshore. But your export strategy to Asia... And even within Asia to Vietnam is very different to your strategy to Singapore. And And both of them are very different to what you're doing to the US and what you're doing into Europe. And just to go into those markets, have you wound it back and then got influences for those markets as well? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you you start with that and off you go and export. Yep. So you you will find, I mean, we went to, the biggest mistake we made, we got so excited about winning a couple of awards and people would just ring you up from random countries. And they'd say, we want to be your importer in Holland. We want to be your importer in India. We want to be your importer in China. And we, we just kept saying yes because we were so fucking excited about the whole idea of, one, getting trips overseas to, you know, to sell booze, mm. <laughs> living the dream. And we didn't do enough bona fides and enough checks. I mean, we have, we've parted company with every single international distribution partner we've had, every one of them. Not one of them has lasted the 10-year journey. The only partner that we've had that's lasted the journey is our Australian partner. Thank God, it's the most important market we have. So, what percentage is um, sold offshore now? Uh, I'll call it 30 percent. Have you that? Yeah, I think it'll. I think it'll continue to rise. I, we're having a good. I mean, we don't want to go back and talk about the the C word and COVID and everything else, but that put a lot of businesses like ours. You know, you, you couldn't travel to markets. the The travel market itself sunk. Yes, you know, and duty free is a really big chunk. We sort of travel retail is mm. almost international because if we're selling to a group who manage duty free stores, they yeah. may they manage duty free stores in Sydney, Hong Kong, Germany. Heinemann, who runs Sydney mm. Airport, have got you know travel travel retail stores all over, over the world. world. Yeah, and Dufree have travel retail stores all over the world. So does Lotte, you know, the, the who are now um, have big shops in the city in the CBD, like in the one in the C- Sydney CBD, as yeah. well as duty free stores. So, yeah, right. It, that's a big play, and that disappeared. That went from you know being a really big, big growth engine for our business to zero in 2020. So right. we've had to get that back up over 2019 levels, which is just happening now. So where's the um, where's the future growth going to come from? I think it'll come from well, we've had a big kick because one of the beautiful things about having sold the second half of the business to Lion is that Lion have a massive presence in New Zealand because they're originally Lion Nathan, very very big New Zealand brewer and distributor of booze. So we've had a terrific growth in New Zealand. I think we're going to grow a lot in the travel retail space. I think cruise ships, you know, that sort of upmarket cruise ships that more and more people are going on, yep. we'll do well there. We'll do well in – we're having enormous success in Changi actually at the moment. Singapore um, Singapore Airport is back and it's one of the most spectacular airports in the world. It also has some of the best retail in the world and Four Pillars is performing incredibly well there. Like we're in top five white spirits in in Changi. You know we're top two, top two or three gins at Changi at the moment. 
and I think we're going to continue to grow in Australia. I think it's an interesting time in Australia. You know, someone told me yesterday that there's now 680 distilleries in Australia. Gin distilleries? No, 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 just distilleries in general. Okay. But I reckon about half of them are making gin. So there's got to be 340. So the average what whiskey is it? Yeah, the rest is whiskey, maybe yeah. rum, maybe vodka, maybe yeah. they're making some wacky eau de vies or whatever. There's at least 350, maybe 400 distilleries making gin. And we reckon when we started, there were less than a dozen. So there's a saturation. First to market's pretty handy, isn't it? First, yeah, certainly first 10 to market is very handy. And if you're not first to market, so let's say your gin distillery number 290, mm-hmm. you have to ask yourself, why me? Why will Greg get yep. out of and seek out my bottle of gin when he's already got a shelf full of gins? Yep. Four that he really loves, six that he just bought because he thought he had to, yep. and a few gifts that the, the corporates gave him. Yeah. What is my gin going to be? The Why is it going to attract his attention? And that becomes increasingly hard. It's not impossible, but increasingly hard. Yep. And you have to do more interesting, new, revolutionary things to gain attention. And I wouldn't want to be gin number 290. We were very well-timed. We were very lucky to be gin number 10. So what stands four pillars out then? Because as you say, it may be not 290, but there's been a gin market around for a very, very long time. It's hundreds of years. Hundreds of years. Correct. And you had to see, and you still had to break into that into that space. We haven't just broken into you. You've gone straight past many of them. Mm-hmm. Why and how? Because all that stuff I was saying before, because we did everything better than the incumbents, and we never. So all stopped. those well, so all those well-known brands. Yep. Which, well, are, which have also been bought by big houses as well. Correct, correct. Is that half an opportunity there well, as look, well? Yeah, yeah, yes and no, because, I mean, we now have been bought by a big house as well. Yeah. Um, you know, we're part of Kirin, which is one of the globe's, you know, the, one of the biggest drinks businesses in the world. But what we did is we created a, a, we created a market for Australian gin, tick. Right? That's a big chance because you can go into a market and say, we're Australia's number one gin. So if you are in a bar in San Francisco – that wants to have a global sort of vibe to it and you probably need one Australian gin, you're going to buy ours. Okay. Right? We went and said, right, we went. We need to make the, – the, the very first – one of the very first things we said is we need to make something approaching the world's best gin here to be noticed. Right? So go forth, Cameron, and win all the big awards in the world of gin that you can win. Win the double gold medals in San Francisco, win the world's best distillery. You know, there's only one Australian distillery – us that has won the world's best gin distillery and we've won it twice. Yeah. Right? So be that good. Right? There are plenty of other great Australian gin distilleries who are doing fantastic things, right? And uh, and one day someone will be better than us. My eclipse you. Right? Yep. But we can we cannot allow that to happen anytime soon. Right? And and it's just a matter of Every day waking up going, well, what is it today that we're going to do that's going to be better than everything anyone else is going to do? What's the new variant? We were always, we were the first to market. So there's a product called Bloody Shiraz Gin, you know, which is a purple gin, Mm -hmm. which was gin soaked in Shiraz grapes because we're in the Yarra Valley, right? We're in the middle of a wine region. No one had ever made a Shiraz gin before. Yeah, okay. So who's coming up with the ideas? Cameron. Cameron, Cameron, to a lesser extent me, but definitely Cameron has come up with that idea. He said- so no, no other imports from anybody else. No, you haven't brought a, no, a chemist no. in, a scientist in. Uh, no. This, oh, so no. this is you guys no, sorting no it market, out. No, this is us using what I said before, using our, our our knowledge of the industry, a certain amount of creativity, a self belief, a little bit of funding, 
And we said, right, why wouldn't we make a gin? There, there was a- Okay, I don't want to take this one. What about the old the old story you said earlier? You got to go and find out what the customer wants. How many customers told you they need a Shiraz flavored gin? Thanks very much. Well, I tell you, so what I said when, when I said that you, you've got to find out what the customer wants, right? You've got to listen to, I'll, I'll tell you exactly, right? A lot of people didn't like gin. Yeah, well, we said that point before as well, right? Particularly 10 years ago. What we knew a lot of the customers will have wanted was something sweeter. Because remember I talked about the sweet pink wine and oh, the white yeah. frontenac and all that sort of stuff? Yeah. So if we were going to make a Shiraz gin, we were going to squeeze Shiraz grapes and gin and make a really delicious purple sweet gin. Yep. Right? Now, there was a product that existed called Slow Gin, S-L-O-E, right, which is a gin that's like a liqueur that they make in the UK. It's fairly esoteric. Not that many people drank it. But it had a small niche market in a few places, and it was in a couple of drinks. We said, we don't want to make Slow Gin because we don't grow slow berries, right? We grow Shiraz. And we were in a winery, and we were able to find some Shiraz, right? And so we said... Let's give it an Aussie name, Bloody Shiraz Gin, named by my wife, right? Make it sound Aussie. We're going to sell it at the first time we're opening the cellar door. So, again, surprise and delight your customers. No one knew this was coming, so we opened our doors on World Gin Day in back in 2014 or 15. And, 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 and we had this purple drink. And we said, hey, have a go at this. And everyone goes, fuck, that is delicious. But hold it, cellar door down in- No, this was in Warrandyte before we even opened in Hillsville. Oh, okay. So this is at the back of our mate's shed with the winery, you know, the yeah, dirty, yeah, yeah. dirty-looking shed. Yeah. And um, we showed these people this this purple stuff. We said, what do you think of it? And every single customer who came in that day wanted to buy a bottle, right? So we sold, I don't know, 200 bottles. And we're like, this thing should could take off. We better find a label for it. We better get a name for it. We better figure out how to market it. And it oh, it's a clean skin, was it? It was the first year. It was a clean skin. It was in a, it was in a, it was in a, um, a clear bottle with a blue cap. And I think we had already come up with the name Bloody Shiraz Gin because you bleed the colour out of the grapes. Yeah, right, okay. And which is an old winemaking term, right? Yeah. The French call it sagne, to bleed, right? Okay. So I was, you know, there's me French yep, yep, learning yep. coming back. And we ended up with Bloody Shiraz Gin and it's become a phenomenon. It's easily our second best-selling gin. It's is a, it really? Yeah, it's a gin that, it's our number one selling gin in the UK as an example. And so that's a combination of the intuition plus understanding your customers listening to your customers and understanding your customers is not exactly the same thing as just doing what your customer tells you. You know those stories about well, Steve, I, Steve Jobs and yeah. all that. Like no one, and I said before, no one was walking into a bar saying we need an Australian gin just as no one was saying I need an iPod when they didn't know an iPod could exist. Correct. Right? And so no one knew that a Shiraz gin could exist. There are now 40 Shiraz gins. Oh, really? Everyone makes one. And if it's not Shiraz, they'll do a different grape variety, like Grenache or Sangiovese or something else like that. So, yeah, there's there's a lot of Shiraz gins now. The world of data analytics. We get told all about that nonstop. Yeah. I mean, we use shopper data, right? So we, we use, our salespeople use the data, the scan data that comes out of. And what are we using? It, what are we using it for? We don't. I mean, is, is that more loyalty to make sure that I'm going to sign you up for something else? No. Bring make you aware of new products we got coming out. Like what? What do you? We we are not a data driven business. We see that's interesting. But you're a marketing business too. We're 100 percent marketing business. But I think we might be. We might need. I think. I think data data helps you, and analytics help you when you get to a certain scale, right? And we need to. We need to understand and and. Ad, I think what we used to have is an in, intuitive and intrinsic understanding of our customer. 
because they were they were small, they were close to us. Yeah, you're also now, in, you're now, in front of your customers a lot, aren't you? Yeah, and so now though our customers are much broader, and they're in all manner of geographic areas, and they're also in all manner of different bars and retailers, and you know different places. And I think we need data more now. But I mean, I don't understand the world of data and analytics at all, right? I mean, I tend to be by where I've come from and where I'm going to is this, even if you go right back to that journalism story we were talking about before, like I'm an inquisitive, intuitive, curious marketer and I use my instincts to try to, to, to try to create things. And I'm not a big believer in market research, like going out there and interviewing oh, a thousand people. No, because for the same reason that we talked before, that no one would have said, yeah, you know what we want is a bloody Shiraz gin. Because I know that if I if I put our product out to market research before we launched- You would have done it. We wouldn't have done it because no one would have said they wanted an Australian gin. Yeah. Right. So you've got to be able to, you've got to, be able to measure up where it's useful and when it's useful. But I'm not a big advocate for it, but I understand those who are, but they're wrong. So what's happened now to the business? Well, I mean, the business has grown. In 2023, in July, we sold the second. So, so oh, but we'll go back a couple of years. In 2019, we sold 50% of the business to Lion. Why? The old um, capital question, because we had bought the, sh you know, the shed we were talking about. We bought mm -hmm. the shed, mm -hmm. but it was a, you know, it was a shed. Mm -hmm. And we really wanted a sexy shed because I think if people, if you're going to ask people to drive to the Yarra Valley to come visit you, we should give them something worth visiting, right? Oh, yeah. So- Oh, an experience. And a real experience. Yeah, a really okay. beautiful place and beautiful gin drinks and, and the sort of experience where they will see the gin at its best, you know, sitting in a nice bar with beautiful music and great staff and great cocktails. And we weren't really able to do that in a timber yard, yeah? We were able to give them pretty good experience and a very authentic experience, but we wanted to build something beautiful. And we needed quite a few million dollars for it. Um, so we'd had a couple of people talk to us, a couple of the big international businesses talk to us, and we thought, okay, well, you know, maybe we should see if, if someone's fair income and wants to wants to buy a chunk of the business. And we thought Lion was a really good option because, you know, they were a beer company, they were local, you know, the MD lived in, you know, around, around the corner. Yeah. It wasn't like the MD was going to be in Copenhagen or New York or London or anything like that. And they showed us a real a real desire to get into the spirits business. And they were also going to buy our distributor at the same time. So we did those two jobs. We did those two deals in coincidence, like at the same time. And then part of that deal was that they would over time buy the second half if, if we hit a few various hurdles and if we hit a few uh, marks. And that pretty much came upon us July 2023. So literally in the last six, eight weeks. How's it feel? Is um, it a little bit sad? Um, I'm in a yeah. I'm in an interesting position at the moment because I'm I, I I'm I feel a bit like a a zombie right now because I'm like the dead man walking. You know, like I'm 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 on my way out from ex to, to exiting the business. Okay. Um, the other two boys are staying in. Oh, they're going to stay. How long they? may they stay in? And I'm sort of heading out. And I think yeah, I, I I've got a lot to look forward to, and I've got exciting plans and future and all that sort of stuff and fun fun stuff. But yeah, it is. You just want to make sure that whatever, you know, there's no leg. I mean, I'm not 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 implying that I have some great legacy that I've delivered the Australian business market or in or, or, or the distilling industry or anything else. But you just want to make sure that it's being well looked after and that it's continuing to grow and that all the good people in it keep 
working in the business and keep their jobs and keep getting better jobs. And, you know, you just want the things that you've built to continue to grow. I see no reason why it won't. I'm not without ego, so I'm like, how are they going to do it without me? <laughs> but, um, we'll, just, we'll just watch the demise in front of us. I think we? they'll be fine. There will be no demise. I think they'll, I think they'll soar without me, frankly. So I think the business is the business without telling me directly is extremely excited about when I leave, which is literally this week. Is it? Yeah, it is. It's this week. The three days to go. What would you like to pass on to corporate Australia or the budding entrepreneur? about doing business. What were the key, you know, end of the day, you've had to back yourself to the hilt. You brought in a couple of friends as well, which you could lose yep. during business. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Easily done, right? Yeah. Um, pearls of wisdom, what, what would you pass on? In, in, okay, so, I mean, we, we, I talked before about, you know, this this sort of relentless nature of the business. Mm. I also thought there's a, I also think there's a big piece in just don't be a dick. You know, we've been a very generous business We've been very competitive and hard, but we also haven't done it in a way that has put people off. So leave things on the table. Le- yeah. And and always try to be in credit rather than in debt to people, right? And I think one of the things that we we have opened up our distillery to every young distiller in Australia who's wanted to set up a business. And we've said, come and have a look at Four Pillars if you want it, right? Why why did you do that? Because it's the right thing to do because you're not a dick. Right, and that's even though it's potential competition. Correct, hundred percent. Because the thing about potential competition, and this is a here you go. This, it, like I've, I got, I have no fear of any of our competitors. Never have, not a minute's fear. Right, because I believe we can do everything better than all of them. We're an open book to everyone. You want to know how much juniper we put in, or how much coriander seed? Fucking all yours, mate. But you won't be able to do it as well as us. And even if you make the identical gin to us. Our gene and our brand and our storytelling and our website and our Instagram and our events and our bloody cellar door will all be better than yours. And our customers will be more loyal and our bias towards four pillars will be much greater than it is to you. So knock yourself out, mate. And we've had people who've come to us and really tried to rip us off. And we just sit back and look at them and go, well, they they are going to get a reputation for being bastards. And we are not going to get a reputation. So many people in the Australian spirits industry have been great advocates of Four Pillars. Like they, they will go on the record and say, we are lucky as a new gin distiller that we have someone like Four Pillars leading the way. Like a good, generous, hardworking, well-marketed, excellent business. A good citizen. That are, that are not sh- trying to shaft people. And they're showing us the right way to do things. And we hope we are. Because, you know, at the end of the day, the one thing I would say to business people is at the end of the day, it's still a personal – look, business is still personal. No one wants to do business with someone they hate. I mean, they will do it if they have to, but they will always have them in the back of their mind. Fuck, if I get one opportunity to sh- to, sh- to shaft that guy or one opportunity to go around them to some other customer, I will. It may not happen immediately. It might take years. But I'm, I'm, I don't want to have to sell to that person. And as soon as I don't have to sell to that person, I won't. Yeah, but you also got to be true to yourself, right? You can't love everyone, can you? No. Oh, my God, no. No. And I mean, I, I don't expect everyone to love me. Christ, I'm, you know, I can be a polarizing character. Don't worry about that. But I think being true is the most important thing because, you know, there are two, you know, when I grew up, the word entrepreneur, right, which I think you used before, right, yeah. was a dirty word. Right. Well, I don't in know. My, I don't know why. In my growing up, it was Christopher Scase and Alan Bond. Oh, they were yeah, entrepreneurs. Yeah, that's right. Remember? Yeah, 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 yeah. It was kind of a new, shiny yeah. name in the eighties. That's right. And it meant greasy yeah. white shoe. Remember the white yeah. shoe brigade? And they all lost the memory many yeah. years later too. Yeah, yeah. 
And I was like, oh, entrepreneur. It even sounds a bit slippery. Yeah, that's so, a French coming back to you again, yeah, right? Exactly. <laughs> and I just always called myself, I'm a small business owner, right? Oh, that's okay. what I've always been and what I've always tried to be. And, you know, maybe small business becomes a medium-sized business. But I, I, I think even if you cross a few people and even if you don't always make the right decisions and even if sometimes you don't always cover yourself in personal glory, in the main, you do the right thing the majority of times and – you work really hard, and and if you allow yourself to be creative enough, you'll build and 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 welcoming enough, you'll build great teams. Okay, now let's let's get on to that. So I want to ask you a bit about leadership. I'm going to go about your big knockback earlier too. Creativity. Do we see enough of it? I don't think you can ever see too much of it. I mean, where do we see most of it in the world of the arts? But it has a, it has an enormous place in the world of business as well because I think particularly in our business, right? So if we can't come up with funner labels or more interesting stories to tell or better like creativity can be how you design your windows you know in a, in a retail store or how you how you host an event at a bar for 20 people i mean how you host a an event for all the bartenders right i mean creativity has so many outlets and i think one i think we've always been a creative business but probably not classically because like you would expect me i mean i, I i'm sort of a creative guy but Cameron's a stiller and a production guy, but he's also got a really great creative brain. And I think the whole and Matt is you know a creative strategist, so he's he, it's in his DNA, right? Yep. But I think creative ideas come from so many places within the business, and I think I mean it's a bit of a tro- bit of a trope that you know oh don't ever you know creative ideas can come from anywhere in the business, and you know make sure you let the bottling line people. It's it's true. One of, the, one of our girls on the bottling line has dead set come up with two or three of the best creative ideas across our business for like things like merch. Like, why don't we do this? And I'm like, oh, God, that's a great idea. So there are there are creative forces everywhere. And one of the things about being a little country community like Hillsville mm. is there's some whack job creative nut jobs out there, right? And I want them to all work for us because they're going to be the funnest people, the most interesting people. They're never going to settle for just the boring – like we have a – a, a, a strong line in sort of quite theatrical people in this business. And I love it because it just means that there's this energy when you go into that distillery that doesn't necessarily exist if you're full of boring corporates. And, you know, we, we, we encourage individuality and individuality is often an expression of creativity. Yeah. So we love it, mate. Bring it on. So what's leadership then? Oh, I don't know. Leadership, I mean – I think well, what's leadership people, to you? Because obviously, there's a large yeah. part of that's creativity. Be yeah, you know, you sort of, but you also to start from, as you said, putting your hand out, asking people to join um, or support us. Sorry, in raising capital. Therefore, the other first book we all read, go and hire the very best you can get. Yep. Well, it's pretty hard going when you haven't got much funds in in the till. Correct. So, how did you do that? I think leadership is about um, like why did they come and join you? Okay, so integrity, they've got to trust you, right? So trust is the first thing. Yeah, right? but how'd you get me to start with? But I get you to start with because you think he's telling, he's, he's, he sounds like he's speaking the truth, right? And I'm pretty, it's not going to be too difficult for me to figure out whether or not he's speaking the truth, right? Yep. I can use the Google machine to find out whether or not he's been broke three times and uh, tells the same bullshit stories all the time. Yep. I think leaders still have to inspire. Like yeah, you have to, you still have to have someone you want to, fight for right and i mean the really great leaders you know i'm a i'm a massive sports fan right and i, I love coaches in sport and you know and i'm just watching this Ange Postecoglou thing going on it's terrific moment, isn't it at tottenham well and not it's not terrific if you're a non-tottenham fan but it is <laughs> bloody terrific for an australian with charisma and 
and he's you can tell he's inspiring. He's not just inspiring the players, which is the key if you're a coach, but he's inspiring all the fans, mm. right? And he's really getting getting people to buy into his vision. And I yep. think you have to have that vision. One of the things I think a lot of leaders, a lot of faux leaders are, sh- are lacking in Australian business at the moment is genuine, genuine ideas and genuine fucking, we're going to go there and that's how we're going to get there. And we're not afraid. We're going to crack a few China mugs on the way and all that sort of stuff. We're, we're going to still be decent citizens and we're not going to you know pollute the environment and anything else like that. But we're going to go hard at it in that direction. And the thing that people love about Ange, if we just go to the Ange Postacoglu thing at the moment, he has said from the very day he went to Tottenham, this is how we're going to play football. Yep. Right? And you're on my you're, – you're with me or you're against me. Now, it may not work, but that's leadership is saying we're going to head in that direction. And I think one of the things that people want from leaders in corporate Australia is just a fucking idea of where they're going, right? Because – Government sometimes don't give us that sort of leadership. It's no, waffle, waffle. Pretty vanilla out you there. You don't even know where we're going in yeah. in, in climate. Well, we let's follow the leader a lot of the times, yeah. isn't it, from one to another? But, I mean, even the lead, you know, like, and, and, and the leaders will flip-flop on a million different things and they won't make the difficult decisions. I think you've also, as a leader, you know, like in the early days of an employee, they want to know you're, you're capable of making a tough decision and they want to know you, that you've got their back, right? And you... It, it still astonishes me. You know, I went out to dinner with a couple of my old long-term staff the other night and they can still recall moments that might have happened eight, ten years ago when you showed through your actions, not through words, but your actual actions that you had their back. And people, it lives with them for a long time. Like, And, and they, they, they want to know that that leader will talk truth to them will admit when they make mistakes because leadership is not about thinking you're infallible, right? It's, it's probably the opposite. But they also want to know that when that, that you're not going to push them under the bus and there may be a tendency amongst leaders today to sort of, I love the word obfuscate, but they always tend to be trying to blame someone else for problems. I've always thought that Ange Postacoglu has been sort of not mistreated, but he's had this weird career of two or three years in one place and I would really love to see him stay and show what he's really capable of over the medium to long term. I mean, he was looking like he was going to do it at Celtic. He, he, he should probably do it now at, at Spurs. Mm. So when you walk into the office, do you put your leadership cap on or is it leadership cap on all day long? Because <laughs> well, I know, you're, kids, a funny, you know kids, you're a funny man, so yeah. you've got to actually do that as well, right? <laughs> well, my wife and kids will tell you that I you know, act like a leader only occasionally at home just when it suits me. But you know what I mean? It's – um. I don't think it's a cap you can just take on and off. I think you can see kids who are the charismatic leaders on the football team in the 15s. Yeah. You can see the girls who are the charismatic leaders of that group of 10 girls who go out, go off on a European trip. Yep. And you can see it. Now, what you need to do is nurture it and, and improve upon it. And then I think you can really create great leaders. Not everyone has it. Not everyone wants to be a leader, I think. But even those people who don't want to be leaders need strong leaders to help guide them to be their best. And I think that's what you can do if you're a great leader is you can work with people to, to bring the best out of them. So what do you think of these cliches? Every every interview I have, I get told, you know, tell me through your leadership style. I'm collaborative <laughs> and I'm authentic. Yeah. I go, right, okay, well, firstly, you've got to tell me you're authentic. That's a, that's a, that's pretty scary to start with. But yeah. what are your thoughts on this whole, you know, everyone's, and you know what? It is consistently everyone saying the same message, thinking, can't you just be an individual? Can't you call a spade a spade? And as you say, sometimes you don't have to be collaborative to be a leader. 
That's why you're there to lead. Well, I think sometimes you can't be collaborative to be a leader, right? And I think I um, so I think a leader has to be flexible, right? I think you, sometimes you do need to collaborate, even if you don't, if you're not sure of what the outcome will be. It's important to bring people in, yep, right, and get your team together, right? So everyone, you know, again, if you're talking sport, you know, you need there are times when you need to bring the whole club together to collaborate on something to to get us to get buy in right across the business. So flexibility. So and but sometimes you've just got to direct and dictate the truth, right? And some so sometimes being collaborative will work in certain times. Being direct will work at certain times. I think you need to listen. A lot of some listeners hear 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 a lot of stuff but listen to nothing because they've already got their own ideas. I do think you need to listen because you do need to not understand that your people do have either they want their contributions to be heard and listened to, it may not mean that you necessarily will agree with them and go along with their what they've said, but you need to give them an, a, a rationale for why you didn't do it. Hey, listen, you know, Cheryl. Yeah, fair enough too. You know, Cheryl, you were, I thought that was a great idea, but his, his, you know, I'm not going to spend hours, Cheryl, telling you why this is a bad idea, but here's two or three reasons why we couldn't do it. Yep. Right? And Cheryl loves to hear that because she thinks, well, one, he, he, he bothered to listen to my bloody idea. Yep. And he's had two or three reasons why it wasn't the best idea. Yeah, fair enough. So I think there's um, – And I guess I, it's changed a little bit from from the startup day one through to where you are now. It has. I mean, what we talked about before, you know, the world the world has changed phenomenally in the last 20 years in terms of technology and the way we communicate and the way we talk about things. And, yeah, I mean, it's 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 probably less it's, – it's probably harder to be an old school leader now than it was when I started – in business, okay, yeah, maybe I'm becoming a dinosaur leader. <laughs> you know, maybe I might have to go back to leadership college to um, improve upon my 2023 leadership skills. We'll see. If you were to look back at that young man being a cadet journalist, yeah, all those years ago, all those years ago, yep, Stu, what advice would you give him now? Honest to God, I wouldn't change a thing. I would say do, do fo follow your dreams, right? And not just which is which is funny because often that's the conversation. I became famous. This is a bit of a segue here. That if some if we needed to let someone go in the business, the it was Stuart's going to give her the follow your dreams um, conversation, which is come on in your car, <laughs> come on. I really think you should follow your dreams. What are your dreams? And I've always wanted to make cakes. And I'm like, follow your dreams. Bye. <laughs> so um, no, but I think. Don't be afraid to try a whole bunch of a whole bunch of things. You know, like I'm, I'm 54, right? I've continued to, you know, I'm I'm, I'm studying spirits at the moment at the Wine and Spirits Education Trust out of, out of the UK. I want to keep becoming more interesting. I want to learn more. I want to keep pushing myself harder, and I want to keep seeing if there's other opportunities. I think if I said to my younger self, I would say stay curious because I was always curious. Like I always wanted to know what made things tick and, you know, I just like talking about stuff, interesting stuff with people. Don't close your mind to anything, right? Give everything a, a chance, you know. Um, there's nothing worse than people who just say, no, nah, don't, uh, nah, don't like sport. I'm like, how can you close your mind off to something that so many hundreds of millions of people love? At, at the very least, give it a shot. You know, I sometimes listen to jazz. I don't like jazz. <laughs> But I'll, I'll listen to a bit of jazz just to get a sense of why. <laughs> but, um, yeah, and try your best not to be a dick because, you know, maybe I was a 
bit of a dick when I was younger. Well, yeah. So, yeah, maybe. Yeah. I mean, I always try to get away with it by making people laugh, but uh, I think I'm a better, I mean, uh, my, my wife will tell you, and so will many of my uh, staff, that I'm a, I'm, I'm a better person to be around now than I probably was 10 years ago, but and maybe 15 years ago and 20 years ago as well. But when you're young and you're, 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 you're on a path and you're trying to really build businesses, you don't want people to get in your way. You, you do become a bit, you, you're a, a, a relentless, occasionally ruthless hard worker, right? And you yeah. never stop thinking about your business. Yeah. So the other thing I would say is never, don't worry about, <laughs> I know I probably shouldn't say this because this is getting me in trouble, so don't fucking worry about work-life balance. It's bullshit, right? Find a, find a job you love because then you don't even ever think about it, right? I've never questioned work-life balance. I've, work has been my life. Yeah. Right. And I've loved it, and I still continue to love it. I mean, and, and I'm thinking about my my work while I'm sitting at at the footy. I mean, not at the key moments, obviously. The key moments, I'm fully I'm fully invested. But you know, like if you find again, this sounds like one of these sort of truisms. If you find something you genuinely love doing, right, work life balance is no longer an issue. Right? Work life balance is only important if you hate work and love life. Right, and don't so don't hate your job. So I think one of the things I'd say to my young me is if you hate your job, get out of it and start again. And that's probably what I've done. Mm. Well, that's you. Thank you very much for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for having me, Greg. You've been listening to No Limitations. <laughs>